Welcome Future Foodcast food enthusiasts to another episode of the Future Foodcast podcast. We're so glad you've joined us. I'm Pam Miller, your interviewer for this afternoon, and I have with me Matt Adelman. He is a partner with Kyoto Consulting. Welcome to our podcast, Matt. Thanks, Pam. It's great to be with you guys today. Yeah, we're glad to have you. Why don't you catch us up a little bit on where you are now, but I guess give us a little history of, of how you've gotten uh where you are. The short version, right? So uh, I, I'm with a, a group called Kyoto Consulting. We are essentially a food rep uh, brokerage uh, that works with some major retailers across the country. We represent primarily fresh food manufacturers, but we play in uh, all spaces throughout the retail grocery store. Um, it's my quick background. I've been in food since the mid 2000s. Uh, I started my career with Super Value back when they owned Albertsons. I was, I've been in the merchandising side most of my career. I uh, started in bakery with Super Value and did all sorts of cool, fun projects uh, for Albertsons and Acme and Jewel and lots of different retailers across the country. Um, spent time in the bakery, the deli department, launched some private label programs. Shifted because I wanted to learn what it was like to be on the manufacturer side. So I, I was at Land Lakes for a few years uh, as a marketing manager and uh, worked in their nutritional additives business, which is trying to revolutionize animal feed as well as spent some time on their deli business, their food service business. Eventually made my way like most people in Minnesota to Target Corporation and spent the last five and a half years as the uh, senior buyer for the deli division. Uh, so if you've bought any food items at Target uh, from their deli, uh, those are the products that we worked on and developed and launched and, and you know, brought brought to life to, to all of the, the fine listeners out there. And three years ago, I mean, when the pandemic hit, it was time for me to make a change and corporate America left Target and uh, joined a, a small food manufacturing company out of California. And, and here I am today with uh, Kyoto Consulting, helping bring lots of cool, fun stuff to market and, and helping uh, manufacturers get into retail. Well, thanks, Matt. You have a really, really interesting background. I have bought fresh food products from Target, so you did a good job thanks. with that. I really enjoy, uh, I've watched them expand over the years and as being an earlier shopper, I'm very familiar with them and they're food offering has really expanded. So I guess we need to look to you for part of that. I, I was a, a small part of that, but yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy the evolution that Target in particular has had uh, over the last 20 years when they really started to get into food to where they are now. But you know, a lot of retailers have really stepped up their game over the last five years to just compete in this market. Well, and you have a bit of a theme throughout your career. I mean, just working on, you know, innovation and, and those cutting edge things. And you mentioned in that bio about the nutritional additives business for food at can you explain a little bit more about that i think our audience would be interested so uh land lakes most people think of land lakes as the butter company but land lakes also owns purina animal feed side of purina so they don't do anything with dog or cat food but they do everything with livestock uh, and then they own a company called winfield which is a egg inputs company and a crop company so i was on the purina side of the business for a little while they had started a company called nutritional additives um, and the idea was they had a whole team of phd scientists in st louis and at the at the farm that were on a mission to get rid of antibiotics animal livestock and so they had a bunch of different proprietary chemicals and blends that they can add to animal feed for pigs and chicken and a little bit on the cattle side, where if you introduce these compounds, it basically can can help as much as antibiotics help with growth help with 
keeping the animals healthy, uh, but not introducing, you know, the stuff that people don't want in their food and don't want in the livestock industry. So that's what the company was on a mission to, to try and do. And I was brought in to, to lead the marketing efforts there. That is really interesting. I think a lot of consumers, me included, really would would like to eat the end products that come from those animals that are eating that feed that that haven't been treated with as many antibiotics. I know there's been a lot of controversy over the years, and I, I'm really glad that that initiative is out there. I was unaware of that before um, you just brought it up. So uh, I'm glad to know, and I, I'm sure other consumers are. They're still doing those kind of things, I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah, the, the the team is still there. It's it's changed a little bit from from when I was there. It's been six years now. Um, but there there's a couple other players in the space as well. Um, there's a lot of this technology that's being developed in Europe. Europe has a huge push on it because their rules are are even stricter than here in terms of uh, animal production and in their food system. So yeah, there there's a lot of people working on it. It's it's interesting to see it all all playing out. Okay, so you were in the corporate world and then timing with the pandemic really to leave <laughs> and join the consultancy how did that transition go what have you seen i guess from being on the on the other side and and maybe looking at a broader scope of companies yeah i'm so i left target um officially june of 2020 Okay. Uh, so right, right after lockdowns and everybody was sent home and, you know, the last three months that I was there, it was just a mad scramble of figuring out what is, what do we do? What is going on and how do we get food? I mean, if you remember pictures of grocery stores, it was decimated. You couldn't okay. funny. The only thing you could get was all the plant-based stuff. Like there were all these pictures of the meat departments completely wiped out, but plant-based was fine there. Some, some of the other areas like just completely gone. And so we were, you know, we spent weeks just working with every manufacturer, every distributor, everybody that we could possibly uh, get a hold of that had food and, and could, you know, had transportation capabilities to try to get products to the stores. I mean, it was, it was nuts. The other side of the world, again, on the manufacturing space, it was just how do we keep up with demand? Demand is insane. Food service shut down, right? Food service went to completely zero, but retail grocery stores were nuts. Like you just, you couldn't keep up with demand. It was, it was, it still is even today. It's, it's really hard to, to keep up with the demand. It's just, it's incredible. Right. That's one of the challenges that's going on. Interesting about your plant-based foods being the only thing that was out there. My thought about that would be, because I'm one that goes to the grocery store every couple of days to get fresh food. And my thought would be just, it's not shelf stable, whereas meat or whatever you could stick in the freezer, but you can't really keep some of the fresh food that same way. And that might be why people are looking for just things that would stay on the shelf more canned goods or, you know, and certainly in the yeah. fresh food area. Yeah, the things that you could freeze, things that were shelf stable, uh, the fresh departments, you know, some of the some of the stores just shut down fresh departments, like the delis in a lot of places completely shut down. Um, anything that had to do like fresh, fresh meat shut down. And it was all about frozen, like expand on frozen where you can expand on shelf stable where you can, uh, yeah. and just get as much product out to consumers as possible. So we didn't know, right? Like if we rewind two years ago, we had no idea what was going to happen. I mean, almost two years to the day, right? It's beginning of March right now. And all this was happening it, two years ago. That's right. That's right. It is. And uh, to that point, I mean, trends, you, you keep track of a lot of trends in what you do now. And you're, you're looking at, at where consumers were looking before and, and what they did. Uh, can you speak to that? Like before the pandemic, what was kind of popular with people and then, you know, what you saw during the pandemic and 
I'd love to talk about what you see coming in the future, but it, you know, I, I threw the plant-based thing out, not as a, it, it's just kind of a, I, I laugh a little bit because when I left, when I left Target um, and a lot of the retailers that you talked to in 2018, 2019, it was plant-based, 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 plant-based. Like it was everywhere. If you went to Expo West or any of the big trade shows, you saw plant-based everywhere. And it was the huge trend, but at the end of the day, like it, it, it was never quite the same experience as just eating the regular protein. Right. And so um, that is one trend that we saw really slow down over the last couple of years where people were really pushing all the innovation, all the development was on plant-based. Now uh, it's starting to pick up a little bit again, but it's not like it was, you know, three years ago. The pandemic hit, it was forget innovation, really get product out there, just get stuff that we can consume. What we saw was a huge shift from like big innovation and bold flavors and all that sort of stuff. We saw a huge shift to just, I'm not eating out at restaurants anymore, but I want that experience. So help me get that experience. How do I get food that I can just bring home that I can cook from the grocery store and feed my family? And my kids are going to eat it, right? Like, give me a little bit of excitement. Give me a little bit of the restaurant feel, but I'm not a chef. So don't make it hard for me. So we saw a huge jump in like ready to cook kit type meals where people could just bring stuff home and assemble it and, and have dinner in 30 minutes, minimal work, like that segment of the store. And today it's, it's just on fire. It continues to grow. It does continue. I think, well, because I think uh, in a lot of ways, we are never going to go back to, um, you know, there's a lot of people who are still working from home and may continue to work from home by choice or their company's choice and not go back to an office environment. Like the whole process of, of their day, the whole structure of their day is different. And during that time, a lot of parents were having to homeschool because the schools weren't open either. Talked about ready to cook or, you know, I'm not a chef. It's kind of like, how do I manage all these things that are pulling on my time. I've got the homeschooling with the kids. I have my work. I've got my family, all of it. And I also need to feed, you know, we need to eat. And uh, so I can see where that would really be a big push there. And we need the kids to eat it. Like, don't, don't give me some protein. I don't know how to use. Don't give me some product I've never seen before. Don't give me something that doesn't taste good because I'm not throwing it away because I can't go back to the store because I can't get anything in the first place. Like (laughs) keep it simple type mentality. And the kids need to eat it too. Interesting how the market shifts like that. Uh, We are starting to see things open up uh, from the pandemic. I mean, we may have other waves come along, but what do you, what do you see happening moving forward? Do you have a thought about that? Yeah, it feels like we're back to where we were in 2019. Uh, We are seeing a ton of innovation projects again. We're seeing a lot of bold flavors again. We've seen the comfort foods continue to be the thing that people want in the stores. Um, but give me an extra flavor. Give me something a little more exciting than, you know, like quiche is an example we were just going through. Like quiche is something everybody knows, right? It's it, but how do you give me something that's fun and exciting and a little bit better than, you know, just the standard quiche that I had five years ago. So items like that, where it's comfort food, people are familiar with it. Uh, we see a lot of innovation on those products, taking it from flavors and different fillings and different textures and that sort of stuff. I, I do see plant-based popping up again. Like there is a shift back to people at the end of the day, I think health and wellness, it will always be a huge trend. What within health and wellness, is it plant-based or is it, you know, low sodium or is it whatever else? Um, but health and wellness in general is really picked back up again. People are going after it. They want to, you know, push that, that whole entire category again. I think that's a good thing that people are coming back out of, you know, the trend towards comfort foods 
soft and the easy to eat and that the kids will eat during the pandemic. Uh, that caused a lot of other byproducts like uh, weight gain. I call it the, they used to say when you went to college, the freshman 15, I call it, yeah, the COVID 30. I talked to a lot of people who they were <laughs> yeah. eating that comfort food, maybe drinking more alcohol or that they normally would. And also because they were home, the food is right in the kitchen instead of down in the cafeteria at the office or you know, the breaks were easier to take because you're right there at home and you can go grab something and come back to your desk kind of thing. So we've seen a big trend in that. Yeah. In that um, so I, that for that reason alone, I think that health and wellness is taking a, more of a front seat now because people don't want to keep going in the direction they've been going during the pandemic. Yeah. You know, one of the things and not not to spend too much time on the pandemic, but the thing I was hoping that would come out of it is that people would would get back to like, I just want to be healthy. Like, I want to live a fun life, right? Like at the end of the day, that is the best defense against anything is just being healthy, eat healthy, work out, exercise, do the things that we always say we're supposed to do, you know? And so one of our big tasks on the retail side is how do we bring those products to consumers in a way that they want it? How do we make eating healthy, fun and easy and something that anybody can do in any part of the world, food desert or not? Like, how do we get products across the country that are affordable, uh, but but help people just feel better and live a better life. Like that's my big mission. That was always something I was super passionate about. And you know, a lot of the companies we work with now, that that's a huge goal. Yes, I want flavor, and yes, I want you know really fun things. But like, let's make this better too for people if we can. How how do we do that? You know, that that's like the magic. I think those are really good questions to ask. And what do you look at, Matt, as a consultant, when you're trying to look at retail and, and getting the products there, what do you look at to try to figure out what the consumers are looking for? How, how do you identify those trends? Yeah, I mean, it's some of it's art, some of it's science, you know, a lot of it's just listening. Target was great at this. Super Value was really good at it. Albertsons is good at these major, you know, the big players who have like sensory and, and R&D departments. They're really good at talking to their consumers and having focus groups and panels. Like, what do you, what do you want in your food? Here's product A, B, C, D. Which one did you like and why? Um, and just getting a sense of, you know, what is the want or what does the consumer want? But, you know, my favorite quote, and I used to use this all the time in the innovation meetings was, I think it was Henry Ford. Uh, if you ask people what they wanted when, and the horse and buggy was still around. We just have fancier buggies now, right? Because <laughs> most people don't really know what they want and they don't really know what's possible. So part of it is just listening to consumers and focus groups. A lot of it, you know, we, we get a lot of inspiration from uh, fine dining. So we used to always say trend really starts uh, at white linen restaurants and in fine dining. And two or three years later, how does it get to retail when we figure out how to do the technology? Um, and then a lot of companies right now, you know, thankfully they have uh, standards that they're going to enact on a lot of their products that they want to carry in their stores. And it can't have certain ingredients anymore. So if you go to Whole Foods, if you go to Target, if you go to Trader Joe, Costco, like you can't have products that we know are absolutely horrible for you anymore in a lot of their own brand products. And so that's really shaping the industry a lot too, as we figure out like, get rid of the crap. Like if you don't need it, don't put it in there. We don't need 90 days shelf life on fresh product. Like it's not supposed to exist for that long. So stop putting all of the crazy preservatives in. I, I think that's the consumers are really driving that and they're paying more and more attention to what's in the things they're eating. And that's got to be that's got to be a good trend. So you're taking a look at that. I just think we're finicky at times. We say we want one thing, but yet if you look at our buying habits, we we're buying something different. And so you have to reconcile that. And I always people. 
think about people say they want to eat thin and, and healthy, but then what they buy is not necessarily lining up with, you know, what you might find in a focus group or something. Right, so right. being innovative, making it fun. You had a really good point there. Making healthy eating like fun and interesting, I think is really important to the consumer. And, and are there any new technologies out there that are helping us to you know, move forward in the food space as far as what we're doing for consumers and, and healthier eating that you know of? Yeah. So some of it is as simple as like the, the PMI nutritional additives division I was talking about that Landalix had, like there's natural com compounds out there that we can use. They're just a little more expensive or a little harder to source than, you know, potassium sorbate or some of the, the, the chemical ones. If, if a consumer understands that the natural preservative or the natural stabilizer is better for you, like we're finally to the point where a lot of consumers are willing to pay that extra, you know, five or 10 cents or whatever it is. The technology, this isn't necessarily new, but it is getting a lot more application across the industry. It's HPP is what we call it in, in the industry, high pressurized pasteurization. It's essentially a giant cement mixer, like this big bulldozer cement mixer tube. Um, and you put product through the line that's inside of this thing and you crank up the pressure inside it to like 80,000 PSI, just an incredible amount of pressure. And when you do that, you can kill bacteria super easily. And so you, you pouch the product or you put it into whatever container, you run it through HPP. Uh, you don't need to put preservatives in it because this process naturally kills everything that shouldn't be in there. There's limitations, right? Not every product can withstand 80,000 PSI. So you can only do so much, but all right, what can we do with it? And so, you know, that's huge innovation project. And in a lot of the stuff we've done over the years of, I want this item, but I want it HPP. So you see a lot more of those uh, machines that are popping up throughout the country too, where, you know, the consumer doesn't know, they have no idea what the difference is and they don't, they're not going to see HPP on the label. Uh, but our, our, it's almost our duty as, you know, responsible manufacturers and, and, and merchandisers to, if we can make this sort of stuff work, uh, you know, to bring it to market, it's, it's just better for everybody. Well, that's what I was about to ask about the HPP. I've never seen that on a label somewhere. How would I know? I mean, how are we going to educate consumers about this process? That's really kind of behind the curtain a little bit. Unless you're trying to get credit for it somehow to, to make sure that the, the consumer understands what it is, like there's kind of no reason to put it on the label. You know, what, what the consumer does see is that when they look at the nutritional ingredients, there are no preservatives. This is a pretty clean item. They're not necessarily going to know the, uh, the food safety step that was taken to, or the pasteurization step or the kill step that was taken in the product. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think a lot more people are looking at their labels and paying attention to what's in there, as we said before. So that's that's really interesting. I would love for the education to improve there so that there was a little bit more transparency into the manufacturing processes for some products. And I don't know if that's, I don't know, a documentary situation or <laughs> information on websites for, for food products or different food items that you might have. That's a really interesting one. Anything else that's out there that you see? You know, the natural preservatives are huge right now. The, the HPP side, just the hot fill. The, there's other techniques that you can use in the manufacturing process, depending on if product is pouched or if it's, you know, IQF is uh, instantly quick frozen. Like uh, you see that a lot with like frozen vegetables where it's cooked and then instantly frozen. And, you know, you could prevent bacteria growth that way. There, there's a lot of technologies out there, but we're, I, I feel like we're finally at the point where 20 years ago was so easy. Just, just throw preservatives in it. Nobody cares. Not a big deal. Now it's like, nah, we got to do this the right way. How do we make sure that we're providing healthy, nutritious, good food as affordably as we can 
you know, a lot of manufacturers have just stepped it up naturally to, to get to that point. And I, uh, that's great. I'm glad to hear it. And I'm glad that manufacturers are paying attention to that and consulting firms like yours are really putting that out in front of the companies that you're working with to say, consumers are looking for these things in the items that they, that they purchase. Well, what kind of challenges are out there right now in the food industry? I mean, the, the biggest challenges we're dealing with right now, just getting ingredients. Ingredients are so hard to get right now. Um, demand is so high. You just can't, especially in the fresh world, it's really hard to keep up with production of livestock to get you know the proteins that we need to make a lot of these items. You have a lot of imported ingredients that are still getting held up at the ports. You've got a lot of items that just can't make their way into the U.S. right now. I, I, did you see the pictures of the port of Los Angeles like six months ago? Yeah, I tried not to look, but yeah. You know, I think there was a hundred container ships sitting out in the bay because they didn't have people to offload them. So the just the raw ingredient part is is tough. I think obviously that'll go away. It'll get easier as things open back up and it's not that hard to grow a chicken or, you know what I mean? Like we can do that. The, the thing that scares me the most is... I want to say it's about 2% of the total U.S. population that is involved in agriculture. The vast majority of people have literally no idea how their food is grown or how it gets to where it gets to. Uh, and you don't have a lot of people who go to school and say, I want to I want to become somebody who's in the agriculture world. Uh, so just the labor and the workforce in this industry right now, it's not there and it's not getting any better. And a lot of manufacturing plants, especially uh, on the fresh side and on the protein side, they're in cities and towns and places that people don't necessarily want to live. Uh, and you just, you cannot get people into those, into the, the plants to do the work that needs to get done to get food out to the world. It scares me. That's the part that keeps me up. Like, how do we get people to want to work in this industry again to get food out? So labor is huge. And then the last one is it's transportation, just getting people to get the products. Again, not a lot of people are going to school saying, I want to be a truck driver, but that's what we need. Like we need people who can make the product and get the product from A to B. We need people at the warehouses that want to offload the product and make sure that it gets to the stores. And the whole entire supply chain side of the industry right now uh, is a little fragile and It'll, I think I have faith it'll get fixed, but it, it, it scares me. It keeps me up. It keeps you up. Well, do you have any solutions for any of these pieces? Any thoughts about? I loved your idea with the education piece on, on the HPP side and some of these other things. I think there's an education piece on, and I know there's documentaries, Netflix has some, and there's some things out there where people are trying to get more into what our food system actually is, but have education and get have programs and have things in place to get kids excited about the food industry right? Like get more people involved in the industry to want to work it and want to have solutions and, and fix it. So to me, it's an education piece. And secondly, this one scares me too, but I do think more automation, more robotics, more, you know, Tesla is working on an automatic shipping semi truck, right? Like if we, if our goods were shipped automatically overnight and drivers, you know, trucks just drove themselves, you know, that solves the transportation side or at least part of it. Um, so I think technology is going to play a huge role. You know, if people don't want to work in the industry, we're going to find robots or something else that will like manufacturers still have to get food. We still have to make it still got to get it out to the country. So interesting. Uh, and you, you might totally be right. We'll have to talk again, you know, in a few years <laughs> and see what's actually happening there. Uh, but as far as you talked about feeding people and, and natural, you know, the small percentage of people that are involved in agriculture, especially in this country, but our population is also growing and growing and, and we do have limited space. So what are your thoughts on that? You know, every, every stat, what is it? 80% of stats are made up. Uh, <laughs> one of the stats we used to always hear at Land O'Lakes was, you know, by 2040, 
we anticipate that the global population is going to double and we'll have somewhere around 12 to 14 billion people living on earth. Uh, so double the population, but we have between eight to 10% more arable space to actually grow product on, to grow, to grow crops. So how in the world are you going to feed double the population and you only have 8% more space to grow on? That whole, that question, that needs to get solved. And there's a ton of people working on it, but how we get there and what happens, you know, I'm a huge fan of like aquaponics and hydroponics, creating farms, creating, you know, urban gardens, rooftop gardens. I mean, it only feeds so many, but if, you know, we talk about food deserts and places where you don't typically get a ton of fresh product. Well, what if you could grow all of the crops right there somehow indoors or on rooftops or however you do it? Like there is so much space throughout metropolitan areas, like old warehouses or, mm -hmm. you know, space where you could set up these indoor farms and start doing some of this local farming and don't just rely on the major, 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 huge agriculture companies. Well, we do have a pretty general audience, very broad. If you wouldn't mind, just take a second and explain hydroponics and aquaponics. Oh, sure. So um, listeners just differentiate and explain a little bit about what that is for those that might not have been exposed to that before. Most products are going to be grown in the dirt. They're going to grow in a field. You're going to plant a seed. It's going to grow. They're going to fertilize it, do whatever, uh, water it. Nutrients are going to come artificially or just from the ground. And so that's traditional agriculture. Uh, hydroponics is when you plant the seed in some sort of liquid substrate and you're going to uh, feed nutrients into the water. So you're going to hydro water ponics growing, I think is a little rusty on my Latin, um, but growing stuff in water, essentially, and you feed the nutrients to it. But when you do that, you, you can control growth rates, you have a, a easy environment to grow in, you have grow, grow lamps, you can, you know, do it inside. So you don't have disaster and drought and all the other things that come with it. Uh, so that's hydroponics, you see a lot of tomatoes, cucumbers, uh, there's a lot of lettuce, a lot of, you know, leafy vegetables that are grown in this manner today. Minnesota has a ton of hydroponic producers. Canada has a ton of hydroponic producers. So chances are, if you buy produce in your supermarket, and you'll see that back to the education piece, it'll tell you this was hydroponically grown. Aquaponics is the one I'm super excited about. I did a, a project about this when I was getting my master's and we had a team, we were going to try to do this. Aquaponics is very similar to hydroponics, but instead of feeding fertilizer and having some sort of nutritional uh, soup, so to speak, you grow fish in a, in a giant cylinder, right? So you have fish and you take the fish water and the fish poop and you you pump that water over your grow beds. The plants absorb all of the fish waste and they purify the water and you shoot that water back into the fish tanks. And so you have this closed loop system where the fish feed the plants, the plants clean the water, the water goes back to the fish. And the only thing you introduce is the fish feed. And so you can grow this continuous cycle again with grow lamps and you can do it all indoors and very controlled and very you know automated, uh, but you have this closed loop system to provide fish protein uh, and all sorts of different fruits and vegetables and, you know, right. whatever else you want to try to grow. So that's aquaponics. Well, Matt, you know, there's a lot of benefits to both of those, but one that I see is that some of the environmental impacts that we currently have that really, really impact our food source as from a natural plants, things that we grow, you know, the, the weather, the things that happen in the environment, yeah. fires, winds, different hurricane, whatever it might be, hurricanes or storms or you know lands mudslides yeah, you know yeah. whatever you have in those two situations you've got more control depending on where you set it up or how you set it up you and do and if you look california is the largest growing region in, in america right how often do you see droughts in california 
Yes. It's somewhere between 80% of the water that you use to grow just lettuce and, and the, the vegetables that we get, 80% of the water is gone. It, it goes away, it evaporates. In an aquaponics system, you only lose 2% of the water. And so just from that standpoint alone and how much you save in water, let alone all the other you know environmental benefits, I wish I could figure it. I wish I had the funding and the, the means to do it, but uh, someone know. out there is going to figure this one out. I like, it seems like the future. You seem pretty passionate about it. You might be figuring it out sometime <laughs> soon. I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised, but that kind of speaks to sustainability a bit, which I know you're very interested in and, and, and being a good steward of the resources we have. And, and the water is a great example of that, where you're using it to the best of our ability and we're, we're not losing it or wasting it, or you're just, able to use have these fixed number of resources and use them well uh, are there other areas where you see that we're able to either recycle or reuse or that's helpful every retailer has lots of programs in place to help with this one you know food waste we haven't really talked about it a whole lot but food waste is like 30 to 40 percent of all the food that we make is thrown mm-hmm. away into a landfill and it's crazy. Like, you know, I was just reading something before this. It's estimated we could feed another 25 to 30 million Americans if we just stopped throwing away food. And so re- a lot of retailers have programs in place to help with this. But the reality is like average before food even leaves, especially fresh food, before it leaves the grocery store, 10 to 20% of all that food is going to get thrown away because it's going to hit shelf life and somebody didn't buy it. Right. Mm-hmm. So before it even leaves the grocery store, we're going to lose 10 to 20%, let alone when it goes to your house and sits in your fridge for a week or two, fill your plate up and the kids, you know what I mean? Like it, it all adds up so quick. So this is where HPP and some of those technologies, again, where we can get longer shelf life packaging has come a long way to get better shelf life. Like how do we stop throwing away the grocery store before it even gets to the consumer, let alone how do we get the consumers to you know be a little more responsible and not throw as much away. But retailers have come a huge way in trying to partner with local food banks and community outreach centers to try to as much food as they can avoid throwing away. You know, they really try to donate and get that into the right hands. Still really tough to do. I can do my part. Part by trying to identify that thing that's, you know, taking on a life of its own in the back of the vegetable drawer before it takes on a life of its own. Like I have a, a lot of veggie scrambles because it'd be like, what is that? Oh, that's still usable. Let's chop that up and put it in some scramble. Yeah. There's a lot of really cool programs. You see it a lot more in Europe, but there's really cool programs eat the ugly fruit or eat the ugly veggies. Like basically people don't buy fruits and veggies that they look weird because most Americans don't really know how to cook and they don't really know what all this stuff is. Uh, So there's been some really fun programs over the years where 10 cents to buy the ugly fruit or the ugly uh, vegetable item. Uh, There's nothing wrong with it. (laughs) Just get people to buy it because otherwise it just sits in the bin and it gets thrown away eventually. That's kind of a fun promotional thing to have too. And I've heard of that. I used to buy from an organic grower and they would charge less for the ugly vegetables vegetables, quote unquote, the ones that you would probably eat just with your family instead of if you were having somebody over for dinner, we're going to be showing it to somebody. That's yeah. really interesting to say. Direct to consumer companies right now that are doing that too, where I forget the names of them, but my neighbor, she used to get a shipment every week of produce that wasn't deemed sellable at the grocery store, but it's totally fine. And so she would get boxes of produce delivered to her house and whatever, just chop it up. It all tastes the same. That's a really good idea. I need to recheck into that because I've moved since I did that and I need to find out what's in my area. We have talked about lots of interesting things in our interview here, but is there anything else on your mind that you would like for our viewers and our listeners to know about or or hear from you or know about projects you're working on or your consulting company or? I think I, I loved what you said about the education piece. Like I just really encourage everybody. You don't have to be a chef. 
Like, I'm not, don't, don't go get all worried about how to be the best cook or like do the best things, but get educated and know how to make things, know how to take products that you would throw away and do something else with it. Like the cheese is moldy. So what? That doesn't mean you have to throw it away. Like just get more educated about your food and what's good and what's not read the labels, understand what's going on and speak up like in an educated way though. Don't just, you saw so much 10 years ago. What was the lady, the, the food babe? Do you remember her? I don't remember her. So she was on a mission to, you know, clean up labels. And so she would like get passionate about some of it in the product for the right reason. And it wasn't bad. Right. So like being super loud and vocal just for the sake of being loud and vocal, isn't necessarily good either. Uh, But just getting educated on the options, avoid throwing stuff away, like get more involved in food, support CSAs, support retailers, like buy fresh. I don't know. I just, how do we get healthier and better? Like I'm on a mission for it. Let's make it happen. Great. Well, we're glad to be a part of your mission, Matt, and really appreciate you sharing your, your expertise and your insight into what's going on in the industry right now with our podcast. So thank you for being with us, Matt. We've really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Well, Matt, you work a lot also in, in with helping companies and marketing and, and figuring out their products. What goes into uh, creating a brand or figuring out what a brand is going to be? Oh boy. (laughs) I mean, so many things like you would be amazed at the amount of time that they spend in, in just figuring out what to call the brand in the first place. I've worked on a couple of new brands that were launched with different retailers. And I'm not kidding. We probably looked at five or 600 words, just words. What do we even call in the first place? But you know, once that's established and they have a general feel there, it's just like, what do you want this to be about? What do you want this brand to stand for? And how do you get people to understand what it's about? Like, that's the most important part and the hardest part. Uh, once you figure that out and you've come down into what you want to call the brand and, and how you want to market that, what is involved in getting that product actually developed and to market? Yeah. Uh, well, and so this is the thing. I don't I don't know that most people understand like how the food actually gets to the shelf and why am I eating this, this thing here in front of me that you guys developed. Uh, at the end of the day, retailers have to sell food, right? They have to make money. They got to sell stuff. They got to get stuff that resonates to to their guests and to their clients. This competition, the industry is so gigantic. You're competing against other grocery stores and their brands. You're competing against other national brands and the products that they develop. You know, everybody has teams of scientists and researchers and all these people involved to create this stuff you know, coming up with a recipe and a product and all the stuff that goes into it, like it's a huge, huge undertaking. So that that's where the fun starts. And that's where the creativity and the 8,000 recipes that you try that, like all of that comes in, you know, at the end of the day, retail is a competitive space. The food industry is super competitive. So you have to balance. It's this balancing act between like me and my old world. We've we talked a lot about education already. I wanted to provide stuff that was super healthy and good and affordable. But at the end of the day, people have to eat it, right? And so it's like this never ending balance. If you have brand standards and you have a brand that you want to like live up to this really strong ideal, how do you make sure that all the products deliver at the end of the day on that brand on, on, let's say that you want to create something that's healthy, but still really good for you or people eat it. It takes a lot of recipes, and a lot of products, a lot of trial and error to get stuff in the first place that live up to the standards, but then you got to get people to eat it and you got to get them to understand what it is. And the marketing part starts, like it gets super complicated. And so I think that's part of the challenge when you walk the grocery store, you see all of these old national brands everywhere, which some of them are great. You know, if you want to change the game and you want to get 
create better stuff for people. You got to educate, but you got to create and you still, then you got to drive profits. You got to drive stuff that's going to sell. And so that's the never ending struggle for most people in, in the world I was in before is we know we want to make it better. We know we want health and wellness. We know we want all of these things for the industry, but it's got to sell at the end of the day. And so it's, I don't know, it's crazy. It's fun. It's science. It's art. It's, you never know what you're going to get. Well, it seems like Matt, this is exactly why you do what you do is so you can go in and consult and help, help companies figure out the brands and, and how they're going to get them to market. Because it, it sounds like it is a multifaceted thing that you have to figure out all the different pieces, all that has to converge before you'll have a successful launch. It's true. It really does. And so I used to have people that would pitch stuff all the time. Like I would go to trade shows, right? And people would see my badge and they'd see I was with one of the big companies. Oh my God, I got this thing. You got to try it. The number of salads and desserts and dressings and things that I've eaten that were made in somebody's bathtub would, would absolutely blow your mind. But it's this weird... My wife used to, like, she still looks at me and she's like, I don't get it. You made the decision of what item went out into all of the stores. I mean, I mean, there's a team, but never ending challenge in this industry is getting stuff that people want or need, or is better for them or is health and wellness or whatever, but they need to buy it. They need to like it and they need to come back and do it again and again and again. That's right. You've got to figure out that repeat customer that's going to like it, talk about it, buy it again. And then you've got a successful product. Yeah. I, for one, with, with all you just talked about, I'm surprised you don't weigh, you know, 400 pounds, trying all these different things over the years. So congratulations <laughs> on that, <laughs> being in the yeah. food industry and trying all these different things. Just a compliment to you, but I can yeah. imagine. Can I share the, the first project I ever worked on with you? Yeah, sure. Uh, so when I, my very first uh, RFP request for proposal, it's when you, you bring all of the vendors together or you send out a, a form. Here's what I want you to develop. The first one I ever did was cheesecake. It was in the bakery department uh, at Super Value and I did a cheesecake uh, project bid. I had 36 vendors submit their 10 best cheesecakes. And I tried them all. I, and I'm where I am now. I, I look better than I did then. I, I've lost 40 pounds since, since that job. Okay. I, I so ate. you, you did used to weigh a lot more than you do now. Yeah. I was just trying to figure it. And I'm multiplying. I was a math minor in college. Uh, three, that's 360 yeah. different cheesecakes. Okay. Yeah. It was crazy. It was awesome. Even for me, it was a challenge. Like I, I eat, I ate all of this stuff. Like I can't eat some of the products anymore because I've had it so many times and my body like reacts to it. Part of why I was so passionate about getting some of the crap out of the industry in the first place, yeah. probably ingested more of it than most people, but um, it's, it's an art on how to taste product and not uh, overindulge anymore. Well, and that's a really good point is that your, your body actually reacts, you know, and to some of these additives, preservatives and the different things that are in foods and, and it's telling you, uh, no, we're not, we're not going to have that. That's a great, that's a great yeah. Um, yeah. Heads up for the rest of us who, after we eat something and we don't feel quite great, maybe you should look at what that was and what's in there because you know how your body was reacting to that. So I yep. think that's really helpful to be more aware about, about how our bodies are responding. Well, thanks for sharing that, Matt. We appreciate it. Absolutely. See ya. I will. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Future Foodcasts. Future Foodcasts is powered by Farm to Plate, the leading food blockchain platform. Subscribe on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date with the very latest innovations in the food industry.